And the little boy sitting in front of me looked exactly like the little boy I'd grown up with in Romania, um, who lived across from my grandparents. And he and I were born in the same year. And so, and I, and I realized I missed him seeing this other little boy who looked like him. And I decided that the way to express my affection was to poke him very hard in the liver. <laughs> and, and he went, ow! And I, and I was fascinated by this. I thought, oh my god, that's exactly what we would say in Romanian if something hurt. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Patricia. Hello, Patricia. Hello. Ah, and it's a nice sunny day outside. And we're down by the, the South Bank, which is why there's sort of sounds in the background. I only discovered this park the other day. And I've been doing conversations in the Royal Festival Hall for, I don't know, about a year now. But I just didn't realise there was like a park five seconds away. You've got sunglasses on and I haven't, so <laughs> I don't know if that's a, the, the, the listeners won't really know, notice that. But yeah, if, if I sound like I'm squinting, that's why. <laughs> I used to have prescription sunglasses, but I lost them. And now I, they were the best thing I ever had. Now they're gone. Anyway... <laughs> So the first question that I ask people is, how do you know me? I know you from Spark, in Spark London, which I started doing in November. And it's actually funny, I found out about it completely tangentially. I was walking around South Bank and I was looking through the through this thing, the What's On. Okay. And I saw that that night they were doing a story slam where you show up with a five-minute story you've written read it out loud there's a panel of judges who all work in publishing they give you critique and then at the end they pick a winner and the winner I don't know if it's different every time but for that for that particular one the person the guy won a, a creative writing course oh wow and uh, and I was thoroughly unprepared so I didn't have anything written that I could read so I just sat back and watched and it was very interesting and I went home and I thought I want to find more things like this and I googled London live storytelling and Spark was the first thing it, actually Spark was about the first five things that popped up yeah we're lucky that way I yeah. think when people arrive in town they look for a storytelling night we're, we're the one they find which is yeah. really good and, and I was actually disappointed because I was specifically looking for more writing not, uh, not open mics Okay. but I, I was looking around the website and the, the first Monday of the month is at the Canal Cafe Theatre and that's, that's, right. that's the one where you it's curated so you so I, I contacted Joanna and you have to write it in advance send it to Joanna so it was I used a story I'd written but I didn't read it I just told it and I liked it so much I started going to all of the open mics yeah well it's a funny thing isn't it I think yeah a lot of we get we do because I'm a writer as well like uh, and like storytelling without notes and standing up on stage and like telling a true story and it not really being about the words as much as about the kind of connection with the audience and all that stuff that kind of was new to me as well when I sort of came across Spark it's a it's a, a different discipline but I think when you get into it it's quite addictive uh, which I guess you're, you're a testament for because you, you like I do see quite regularly at the nights because I'm there because uh, I work for Spark and you're there 
because uh, you're coming to it just because as a punter. When you went and did Spa in the Canal Cafe Theatre, am I? I think. I think I saw that. I think I was there for that. What, what was that story about? Was that uh, being mistaken for a prostitute? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember that actually. That, that always that's, that's one that sticks quite heavily in, in Radcliffe's mind. I yes, think, it does. I listened. I listened to Radcliffe's Getting Better Acquainted because his life is so interesting. Yeah. And then at the end, he sort of just dropped that in there, like, yeah. oh, and this girl talked about how she was mistaken for a prostitute. I can't believe that stuff. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Is it I, I don't know. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, I guess... Because in a weird way, I guess it's quite a common experience. Like, you know, like, if you are a woman and you're walking through an area where there may be prostitutes around, then a, a lot of women probably get mistaken. But I guess it was the way you told it. That, 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 also, that wasn't really an area that that yeah, happened. I th- That's why it was such a shock to me as well. And also, I was there with, with an investigator from... The, from the office I worked in and he used to be a police officer so I mean in my mind none of this I mean it was completely outside the realm of expectation yeah I thought if anything it looked like he was following along behind me about to murder me <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know because they're my own experiences they feel you know unique like, yeah, to, no, like a budding flower but I think it does happen a lot to women and there's a lot there's a lot happening now in the sort of feminist, I don't even know what to call it, because, like, like, feminist writings, Yeah. there's a lot, ta- there's a lot of, there are a lot of things being written about rape culture, and I get really sick of things like that, and I don't, I can't even put my finger on why, but it just seems like it's fear-mongering. Okay. Um, but... But I remember there's a girl I went to college with who now writes a lot about gender issues, and she's the one person I read regularly and don't think, oh my God, stop, because <laughs> um, she's just so sensible. And she wrote she wrote a piece about how um, some comedian she likes told a joke about how she was just walking down the street at night and some menacing character walked past her, and her thought was, is this going to be my rape? And so there's a there's a thought that like, and then I that really connected with me in a way because I don't think about these things specifically you know when I'm walking down the street like I'm going to be raped now no um but it is a thought that's connected because the way we're taught the way girls are taught to think about their own safety when they're walking alone is very much focused on what might happen and what might happen is that some strange man will jump out of the bushes and so I do sometimes think when I'm walking home especially when I lived in Chicago on the south side and I'd be walking home at night I think oh is that person going to do something terrible to me yeah, sure. And I really connected with that. And so, like, reading her piece and reading a lot of these other pieces, I realized that my experience, because I've been mistaken for a prostitute twice that I know of. <laughs> yeah. God only knows <laughs> how many times I don't know of. Um, I realized that I, these are not unique experiences to me in the slightest. Yeah. But, I, I mean, it is a complicated area, because, I, I mean, you know, part of me wants to say, like, because it's a, a podcast and people can't, can't see it, part of me wants to say, well, it's quite hard to understand why someone would mistake you because you don't like dress in a certain way. But then part of me thinks, well, that's just fun. that's just like that's uh, just part of the problem. Exactly, that's part <laughs> of the myths because yeah. the, you know there's no way that a sex worker will, like will, will dress. And I mean, I know that's a big thing. Like this, because I'm I'm quite I follow quite a lot of feminist uh, <laughs> um, writers and uh, thinkers and the debates 
that are going on within modern feminism, which is, you know, healthy. You know, there's a healthy level of debate uh, going on. But I, I mean, there's a lot of people who are sort of anti-sex work, and there are pro-sex work feminists, and and, and and there's a lot of kind of that side of stuff as well as uh, as well as what you're saying about rape culture, which is a rape culture is a complicated thing, isn't it? Uh, it is. I mean, I think we do have a culture that encourages men to see women as objects rather than people uh, and we certainly have a horrific amount of rape going on um, whether it's more or less than ever before that's a, a question to be asked but uh, it, it, is a, it is a very uh, tricky area because a lot of a lot of people sort of a lot of culture puts the emphasis on women changing their behavior rather than on men changing their behavior and I I'm, I'm much more on the men, men change your behaviour and stop being so fucking ridiculous. Um, I mean, ridiculous is underplaying it. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, men change your culture. I, <laughs> I would say I've changed my culture, but I don't exactly feel like I ever was in that, in that male culture that sees women as objects in that kind of way. Uh, maybe I'm not being honest enough with myself, I don't know. Maybe you're in serious denial. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I it's hard know. to see where yeah. you're prejudiced, isn't it? And where, yeah. you're, where you're judging people incorrectly. But, uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen women as only objects. <laughs> Let's say that. And I, and I, you know, objectification in itself is quite a complicated thing as well. Because I think, like, everybody wants to be considered to be attractive in the right circumstances, it's just the wrong circumstances that everybody feels complicated about. So it's really, yeah, gender politics is a, is a very complicated uh, thing. <laughs> Walking myself down an alleyway trying to work out how to get out. Telling that story, I mean, what was that like? Like the, your first experience of, of telling a story? I, I really loved it. It felt like, it felt like the most natural thing in the world. But it's coming, this is coming off of I'd realized for about the last year, and, and the story that I told, it happened during my internship working for the public defender's office where I was doing a lot of litigation, so I was doing a lot of standing up and talking. Um, it's a lot less, because I was just an intern, I got to do a lot less storytelling in court, as much, and most of what I did was very sort of rote, this person's violated parole, you would like to go back into treatment for, you know, things like that. So, but the actual getting up was was not new. What, what, whoa. We were sort of slowly surrounded by pigeons and then they, they all flew away at the same time. They are just rats with wings. They're the most disgusting I know, I really hate pigeons too. I, I'm, I'm um, I wish they'd stick around long enough for me to kick them. <laughs> but, um, no, I realized about a year before I told that story that when... It's just getting harder and harder for me, and again, this is again something that's not unique to me at all, to make friends, to make new friends. Um, and so, and I realized at one point I had a, an epiphany while talking to somebody for the first time that once you make it past the small talk, the thing that really helps you connect with another person is if you tell a story, because mm. it gets the person engaged. And so I, and so that's, <laughs> this is very clinical, but this is how. If I know I'm going to talk to somebody new and I don't feel completely anxious about the social situation and climb up, I always tell a story. Um, and so, but doing it on stage was a little different. 
than just like a one-on-one, sure. but it felt like the natural extension of that process. Okay. And and I was new to London as well, so it was. I That's don't know, right. It's like a strange. I, mean, I don't even know. Listeners will probably have noticed that you that you that you don't have a, a, a UK accent. No. <laughs> so I mean, the second question I ask people is, what do you do now? Now. Um, <laughs> the now bit always throws me. I'm. I'm now doing. What am I not doing? Um, I'm a master's student here for the year. Um, I've taken the year out of law school. Um, which is what I do back in the States. So technically I'm still a law student, but I'm also a master's student. Um, and that's my general sort of motivation for being here. But I, I just like, I, I just started an internship and I, I just, I started all of these creative projects on my own. So I can't even, there's no one thing I would say I do. Okay. I'm just doing everything. A, a student of everything. Yeah. <laughs> So what creative projects have you started? In December, I was really frustrated that I couldn't find a Christmas card, or not a, a holiday card, like a sort of all-purpose season's greetings. Um, I have a lot of Jewish friends, I realized, and I couldn't, and all of the really pretty Christmas cards said Merry Christmas, and I didn't want to send them a Merry Christmas card. And I got so frustrated that I went home one day after a search, and I, and I sort of drew the London skyline, which is funny, because every reproduction of the London skyline I've ever seen is completely geographically incorrect. Okay. Because it's always like the London Eye and then the sort of penis dome yeah. in Shoreditch. And, um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, Big Ben. And yeah. those things are not close to each other in the slightest. But anyway, I drew that because that's what normally shows up. And then in my frustration, I wrote underneath Season's Fucking Greetings. <laughs> And I sort of set it to the side, that was my catharsis, and then I went back to it the next day and I thought, that's actually kind of funny to me. <laughs> Maybe it'll be funny to my friends. And I made a bunch of them and I sent them, and everyone seemed to really like them, so I've started making greeting cards. Oh, wow. Excellent. I don't know, I don't think this is something I can necessarily monetize, but it's fun. Yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah. He says it on his podcast, which you can't necessarily monetize, yeah. but it's fun. Sure. Well, that's cool. Um, yeah, because uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a funny one with people from Spark, who I've met through Spark, because I don't know you very well at all, really, but we see each other in, in a, an environment where uh, both of us talk quite openly about ourselves. <laughs> and so it kind of feels like you know people. And then, uh, so it, it's, it's always interesting sort of feeling around to find out what the shape of the person's life is when you don't really know. Um, but so you're, you're from America, yeah? No. No. I knew I was going to get that wrong. You've lived most of your life in America? Yes. So where did you start off? I was born in Romania, um, the butthole of Europe. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I've actually, I'm not usually this negative on my people. It's just that um, I, a month ago, my grandmother died and the experience of her death and the funeral has, I'm just feeling very, very negative to anything relating to Romania right now. But, um, but I was born there, we lived there until I was about five, um, and then we moved to Boston. Okay. And um, that's, that's all I knew up until about the age of, I don't remember, maybe 17, when my parents sort of filled in the background on that, because um, I was born a year and a half before the revolution, and my parents knew they weren't going to be happy. You couldn't really, 
advance very far in Romanian society. It was like the sort of baseline level of, of it's, I almost said subsistence, and that's totally wrong, because people, you know, it was like a sort of nice middle class-ish um, type of lifestyle, but everyone had kind of the same level. Once you reach that level, you couldn't go any further, and my parents wanted a little bit more than that, and they tried, I didn't know this when I was growing up, they tried for years to leave, but of course it was illegal to leave. And they tried Germany, they tried Israel, they tried everywhere, and it didn't work out. Um, my mother got herself blacklisted because at one point someone discovered that like they'd asked to leave, they'd asked for permission to immigrate to another country. Right. Um, she got herself blacklisted, and it was a struggle. And after the revolution, so we moved in '93, so that was four years after the revolution. My dad. Um, my dad was a plastic surgeon in Romania, and he went to a plastic surgery or reconstruct. He was a reconstructive surgeon, but he went to a plastics conference in Zurich with this patient that he'd had, who got really drunk one night. He was a construction worker. Got really drunk, fell asleep with his face on the grate that the workers used to warm, keep themselves warm, and his face burned off. And my dad, over the course of I don't know how long, a year or so, sort of by piece started reconstructing his face. Wow. Took the guy to Zurich, presented him, and got himself a position doing research at Harvard out of it. Excellent. And so that's how we moved over. Okay. But of course to me at five, it's just like, oh, this is a magical new adventure. Yeah. We're <laughs> just leaving. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, so do you remember much about the first five years? I remember a lot. Um, I d the interesting part is I don't remember. I have a Sometimes I wish I didn't remember things so well, but um, it's the surprising thing. I remember a lot from like even the age of two, and I don't remember anything about the trip over to Boston. Oh wow! That plane ride, nothing. But I remember after we got, we landed in Boston, my dad picked us up in a minivan he'd rented. He hadn't rented. He borrowed from a friend, and it was teal. And I remember how the inside smelled, and I remember there was a two-liter bottle of Sprite, and I remember the kind of plastic cups we had. Like, I wow. remember everything. But the flight itself, I don't remember at all. Wow, you, you've got very specific memories. That's a, an interesting thing to have. I uh, was annoyed by my my memory. I, I realized recently that I see every, nearly all my memories. I see third person, mm -hmm. so I see myself from outside. So I know that none of them can actually be true. Be real, yeah. <laughs> Which is a, a really annoying thing to suddenly realize about yourself, that none of your memories are true. Uh, but I guess I can still live fine with that, <laughs> it turns out. Um, so what was coming to America like? Um, oh, well, to me it was great. <laughs> I actually didn't speak English when we moved. Um, and so the, I remember the first, my first day of kindergarten. Um, I, I thought I could, I thought I had to translate everything. I, so I sort of knew basics. I knew how to say hello and my name is Patricia Padurian. But Padurian means forester. And so I went to, they, they were taking attendance and I said that I was Patricia Forrester. Uh, and right. so I think the teacher realized something was up because there aren't that many Patricias. Um, I don't think there was another one, so I think my mom got a call about that. Like, I think your daughter is here, but she's here under a, under a false name. name. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but I I had a lot of accidents because I didn't know how to ask to go to the bathroom. Oh no. And we had two bathroom breaks and we used to, they used to file us like in a single file line and take us to the bathrooms and it was never when I needed to go. Never. <laughs> so and it would always be like at the end of the day when I couldn't hold it in any longer and I just wanted to run out and run home with my mother. And um and my mom taught me how to say I need to go to the bathroom. And it didn't click in my head and so the next day I went up to my teacher and I said, Go to the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> Um and and my, this was, I don't know if this is the first, but the very first day of kindergarten, um, my, there was this big room set up, and it was divided into play areas. There was like a kitchen, there was like a building blocks area, and then in the middle was a piano, and the teacher twice a day would sit us, we would all sit on the floor around the piano, and she would sing us, play us songs and sing to us. And the little boy sitting in front of me looked exactly like the little boy I'd grown up with in Romania um, who lived across from my grandparents and he and I were born in the same year and so and I and I realized I missed him seeing this other little boy who looked like him and I decided that the way to express my affection was to poke him very hard in the liver <laughs> and and he went ow and I, and I was fascinated by this and I thought, oh my god, that's exactly what we would say in Romanian if something hurt. Like, I can oh, yeah. do this. And, uh, and then three months later, I had completely switched over into English and was no longer speaking Romanian. Wow. That's an interesting uh, way of, of realizing yeah, the, the similarities between people as well as the different uh, airplane coming over very loudly in my ears. Um, Okay, so, and so you, you grew up in Boston? No. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's good, I like it every time I, every time I think I know something, I, have, I don't know. Incorrect. Um, <laughs> we lived there for about a year, and then, um, so we moved at every stage of my dad's career, and he basically had to start over. Like, he was a fully practicing surgeon in Romania, and he had to re-specialize when we moved. Right. So he did research for about a year, and then he moved to a Massachusetts General Hospital, and then he moved to Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan. And I think he was still doing research at the time. Uh, but they moved him to the lab there, or he chose to move. I don't know. I was too, I was too young. And so we lived... He worked in New York, and we lived in New Jersey for about three and a half years. After that, we moved to Minnesota, and we lived there for almost eight years. So that's where he did his residency. As a child, like... The, the reason that I'm distracted, which you won't know if you're listening, is because there's some, now some children rolling down the grass towards us. And they were doing they did a somersault behind you as well, which was distracting. <laughs> but they've gone now. <laughs> I didn't notice the somersault. No, that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> um, I don't know where, where was I in the uh, saga of my life. So oh. you were saying you, you moved to Massachusetts, is that right? To yeah. Minnesota. Minnesota. We lived there for eight years. This is entirely uninteresting. We lived there for almost eight years. Uh, and then we moved to Wisconsin when I was 16. Okay. And I finished my last two years of high school there. And then I moved. The first choice I ever made about where to live, I chose to study in Chicago. So then I lived. Oh, wow. I did my undergrad. That was four years in Chicago. Sometimes they say Chicago is like the closest you can get to London, like in terms of cities in America, I've heard people say. Because of the weather, I think. Oh, 
I would agree with that, but not in terms of weather. Okay. I, like, <laughs> March here, I know everyone's complaining that March here was pretty rough and that the winter was long. Um, but it was, it was like six degrees in March here, whereas in Chicago it's below freezing in oh, March. Okay. That's not. <laughs> that's not. But I actually, I think otherwise, that's not incorrect. And I, one of the thing, the thing that I keep coming back to living here is that I wouldn't. The only reason I would go back to live in the states is if I could go back to Chicago. Okay. So I like London and Chicago. I think in similar ways. Okay. So that makes sense. That people would say they're similar. So you you tra- you lived all over America, sort of growing up. Um, and it sounds like you, you, you did quite a lot of moving, which I did. I did quite a lot of moving in my in my childhood. Uh, not as not as not as far probably, and not as uh, not not between different countries. Well, that's not fair. Wales and uh, <laughs> and England are different countries, and please don't complain any Welsh or English people. But they're, they're not as different countries as Romania and uh, America. <laughs> Let's face it. It's two different worlds. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, so I guess you you didn't get very much time in any place to make friends that much. I did in in Minnesota. I had eight years there. Oh, there you go. I so was that's there. Like the equivalent of my Cardiff. That was my my yeah. long time. Yeah. yeah, that was like the age of nine to the age of sixteen. And so when we moved, it was pretty rough for me. Yeah. It was. I refused to talk to anybody for the first year we were in Wisconsin. I just had to no friends. Oh wow. Um, I did very well in school though. Yeah, well, that's the payoff, isn't yeah. it? That's, all, that's left in the payoff, anyway. Um, yeah, no, I. It took me a long time to make friends at certain points in school. Um, I did try, though. It was, was not successful. <laughs> so I think that uh, me and you, I, I sense that we both have slight kind of social anxieties in terms of communication with people, and I suspect what we're talking about now is is, is why. Um, when you went to Chicago, though, is that when you made like you, you sort of did you make a new life for yourself when you went to Chicago? Was that to study law? No, that, that was that, just to go. That was just yeah, that was just college. I did okay. political science. So you did an, a degree in political science. Yeah. So that was like three years. Four. Four. Yes. Man. Yeah, and then I and then I went straight into law school for no for no good reason. I just felt like I needed to do something, and I wasn't gonna probably be hired as a political... All of the jobs I wanted in sort of political science or foreign policy, things like that, that I'm interested in, there are, there's an oversupply of PhDs in that area, so nobody's going to hire me out of college with a bachelor's when they can hire a PhD. Okay. So I just went into law school. What, what attracted you to, to sort of political science and, and foreign policy, do you think? I don't know. I've, I've kind of always been interested. I thought I was going to be a doctor for a long time, and then the more I did, I, maybe it's just like, I don't know much about child development, but I suspect there comes a point where you think a certain way up to a point, and then you, you start thinking, you start developing maybe other parts of your brain, I'm not sure. But I was very, like, math and science up until the age of about 15, and then when I was 15, I started being more interested in social sciences. Okay. Um, and so it became, it, and when I started college and started taking chemistry and, and like very difficult math classes, I realized that I could do it, but everybody else was doing it because they loved it and they could approach it from a very, 
from a creative angle and I still can't contemplate how you can approach chemistry creatively. And I realized that this is not for me. <laughs> I don't want to be stuck <laughs> doing something I feel I'm mediocre at for the rest of my life. No, um, fair enough. That's a reasonable decision to make. And, and I don't know why political science, but it was that's just what sparked my interest. And I mean, so I mean, like, what, what are you interested in politically, like, in terms of, like, stuff? Um, I'm very, I think, I'm very <laughs> interested, this is also not really uninteresting for most people, I think the EU is a fascinating political experiment. I know in the States, um, political rhetoric often still, still kind of posits the States as like a, a as an experiment, is the experiment. Yeah. And I think that that was maybe true up until about a century ago, but I think I think to call it an experiment now is to overplay the newness of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think the EU, with all of its flaws, and there are many, um, is sort of the new experiment, and I think it's, it's completely fascinating. So that's what I'm studying here, actually. I'm doing a Master's in European Studies. Oh, uh, okay. Um, and it's a very unfashionable thing to do, uh, to study in, at least where I went to college it is. I remember everybody in the political science department when it came time for us to write our bachelor's thesis, everyone was writing about nuclear proliferation, which I don't understand how there's anything new you can write about that. Like, we, we as students don't have access to like, classified information, so we're working off the same information that we've had for years and that everyone's already written to death. So I overheard these two guys waiting outside of my advisor's office uh, talking about their, they were each writing about Russia's nuclear program or something. And so like the very standard thing to write about and then they were saying, can you believe this person's writing about Europe? No one cares about Europe. <laughs> you're writing the most cliche paper and you're criticizing other people. Yeah. But, um, but coming here, everyone's very enthusiastic about it. Almost too enthusiastic sometimes. Well, but it's a nice change. Yeah, I mean, I guess that you're talking about in your course that everybody's yeah. enthusiastic about it. The yeah. UK in general have uh, not yeah. that much, no, uh, not that much enthusiasm love. for you. Yeah, there's not much love lost there. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what, what is interesting about the experiment? I mean, what, what, what do you think? Uh. Europe specifically is, I mean, compared to the rest, it's such a, it's a very, oh, this is now, I'm just stating facts now, but it's a very <laughs> small space with a lot of different nations, and historically there's been so much, so much violent conflict between these nations, and when you, when you look at it side by side, like if you look at, like culturally, um, the sort of mythologies of, of like Hungary and Romania. There's yeah. a lot of overlap. Like there's a lot of cultural overlap. But and I'm not I'm no expert in any specific. You know I can't give you a specific example off the top of my head. But like there have been wars fought between every tiny little iteration of of the nations of Europe. And so the fact that in the last 50, 60 years. Um, they've been able to come together in any way and collaborate politically and pool their sovereignty politically because that's the other interesting thing I just um, 
I, I did I studied international relations and one of I mean, like one of the baseline assumptions is that a state will never give up its own sovereignty. Like a state will do anything before giving up its sovereignty. And what the EU is is a pooling of sovereignty. And sort of states choose which areas they're willing to give up control over yeah. to the EU. And so it's an, an uneasy balance. Like sometimes they'll say, like, oh, we'll give you, you know, there'll, there'll never be a European army, at least not in the next. You know, that's something people, states aren't willing to give up. But, um, but a lot of control of laws yeah. is pooled, and that's interesting. Like why, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of, a lot of changes that happen. And at the same time, there are regressions, like nationalist regressions. And that's more what I'm interested in. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, those are really interesting points, I think. I mean, I, I, I'm, politically, I'm scared of uh, power of government. <laughs> and so this makes me intrinsically distrustful of Brussels as much as of uh, the House of Parliament. But I'm, you know, also in favour of people not having wars and getting on and, 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 and seeing that we're all kind of one people essentially and stop like having these bound these kind of boundaries between like I'm not very keen on uh, boundaries between countries, for example. I don't really understand how any part of the world can be considered anybody's property. So uh, the fact that people have free movement around Europe, I'm, I like. Uh, so I mean, it's it's complicated for me. Uh, thinking about the positives of, of kind of big government <laughs> organisational systems. But I mean, part of me is always glad as well that Europe exists because it's a balance to uh, America <laughs> uh, or China, in fact. Uh, any of the other big players uh, without Europe, like they would be, they would be very much, you know, less deba- less debate. Although. Again, like I say, how much debate happens when a lot of rich and powerful people get together in a room and make decisions. Well, and it's hard for me to see. That is that is the main the main criticism too, is that it's completely deficient democratically. Yeah. The way it is now. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. For even for all its faults, I I think maybe because of its faults, I find it so interesting. Yeah. No, it must be fascinating to study how it works. Absolutely. No. I mean. Yeah, no, I can, I can totally, I can totally relate to the idea of like study, working out how it all fits together because it's like a massive puzzle, really. Yeah. Europe, like, it doesn't make sense, but it does seem to keep running. You know, maybe that's the case for all political systems. You know, you look at the UK, it's a political system, and I always think, you know, I can't understand how it keeps operating because it's so, so, so many things about it are very logical and against itself and stuff. And the same with America. Does they all sort of the clocks are still ticking? And Just about. On a very extreme level, Belgium didn't have a government for 18 months, but they had, a, but it kept going because there was a sort of a caretaker government that kept the basic admin going, but there was no, you know, there was no elected government. Oh wow, that's very that's that's very interesting. It's been interesting to listen back to this conversation because I had this with Patricia back in the summer when it was sunny outside and hopefully she's coming back over again next summer to be a part of Stand Up Tragedy because hopefully I'm going to be taking Stand Up Tragedy back up to Edinburgh. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show that I do which is a variety night where people stand up and do tragedy and Patricia 
came and joined us in Edinburgh this year and performed with us telling true stories on our stage a couple of times. It's interesting to me listening back to this because I kind of know her much better now because I've seen her a few times more and even after the conversation that you're going to hear we had another conversation off mic sitting on the grass in the sunshine on the south bank and I felt like I knew her even more after that and now had her to stay with Stand Up Tragedy when we went up there. Stand Up Tragedy is starting up again on Thursday the 12th of December at the Dog Star in Brixton. There's going to be Tragic Christmas and the tickets are already available for that from www.standuptragedy.co.uk I'll plug that a little bit more at the end of the show I thought I would take the opportunity of this natural break in the conversation to tell you a little bit about it yeah so I just had a, a momentary break where I changed the batteries um, and you took a picture. I did. Did. Do you do you do, for, do you take photographs like generally, or are you just? I used to, and then I realised that I was more concerned about photographing my life than actually living it. <laughs> so I stopped. I think all of my friends appreciated it because I used to take very unflattering photos of them. What deliberately or just accidentally? Accidentally. Okay. But I would deliberately put them on Facebook so that. I was... <laughs> So there was, yeah, there was a de- deliberate element to it. <laughs> yeah, now I've got friends who get really angry when they get like uh, un- unapproved photographs on Facebook. And, uh, yeah. No, yeah. My, my friends didn't get angry. Well, I don't, they, I don't think they were too happy, but they they just retaliated by trying to take Do a flattering photo of me. That's pretty cool. Uh, good, good response to it. Yeah. So, so hang on. So you were five in 1993 yes okay cool okay so that makes you not that old <laughs> okay thank you <laughs> not as old as me certainly i just um i just turned 25 <laughs> okay you seem to have got a lot of studying into that into that time that's because i've done nothing but study <laughs> i've done i've been in school forever i am so tired of it I'm so tired of being evaluated. <laughs> I'd like it to stop. <laughs> I can understand that, sure. But I guess it's not going to. No, it never stops, but it's just maybe if it could be not numerical anymore, that would you're, be nice. Because you're going on after this year back to Back to school. my last year of law school. And are you going to eventually be a lawyer? Yes. Excellent. Yeah. Well, <laughs> And I mean, so you've sort of you decided to do law because uh, there was too many people at the political science trough, I guess. Yeah, but it really it was not a well-laid plan because there are too many people at the law trough as well. Yeah. <laughs> like the legal market, the job market right now is abysmal. Um, so I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, I know what I was thinking, which is, oh my God, I don't know what I'm going to do. I think if I go back and live with my parents for a year, that would be a failure of like, their entire life plan for me. Right. So I'm just gonna, you, you didn't become a doctor, so... Yeah, exactly. So I'm just going to soldier on and do something with yeah. my life. Um, and uh, law school is a misery. I don't know if anybody tells you differently. It's, it's the worst thing. So I can believe it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I've talked to anybody else who's... 
I may have talked to lawyers, but they, I didn't necessarily focus on their law school time. Yeah, it's very different. I mean, having working last summer at the public defender's office as a lawyer, I realized that I liked what I was going into. It's just the process of getting there that is a dirt. And and I don't know. It wouldn't be so. I can't even tell you exactly why. I know that there is so much um, self-censorship because people start law school and they behave as though as though the top law firms have installed CCTV in the law school to sort of watch them and make sure they don't say anything too interesting. Uh, okay. And so it's very difficult to... I have a lot of trouble filtering myself um, and so it's very difficult for me to not put my foot in my mouth. And so I just And then the material also. You, you learn the law by learning appellate cases. And that's, again, unless you become an appellate attorney, that's not something that's really relevant to you. Most. So what's an appellate? So, um, so, what's the best way to explain this? Um, initially, when you go to court, that's just, you, you go to trial court. Like, you're arrested for driving while drunk you go to trial court and um, more often than not you'll lose and if you lose you you can appeal um, and the attorneys who handle appeals are different from the attorneys who take cases to like the first stage of trial court because you need a so because to, to do an appeal you need to know all of the case law in common law systems and then you need to be able to argue the past so it's less about the facts of your specific circumstances and more about previous cases that have been similar to yours and how they impact how the appeal okay. should go. Um, and and in law school you learn from from appellate cases like Supreme Court cases. So you learn how to think analytically, which is very useful, but realistically, and I, I, my internship was in criminal law and realistically we worked with the facts of the case. So I did. I did research on what the law was, and so I needed to be able to apply the thinking of the, that we learned in law school. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just complaining for no reason. That's probably <laughs> how they need to teach it. But it's so dull. Right. <laughs> it's it seems so, so removed from reality. It really is. Okay. And that makes sense. And certainly, I don't know. It's. I guess it would be hard to teach you cases that weren't closed because there's probably there's probably laws about that I should imagine yeah. Uh, yeah, they can make up a fake fact pattern but yeah it's... yeah <laughs> <laughs> and um, okay so okay so I'm trying to work out I'm trying to, is it okay for me to smoke by the way yeah go ahead I know we're outside, but it seems like these these days it's such an inappropriate thing to do anywhere. No, it's, it doesn't offend me. <laughs> Good. Um, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, so your dad was a doctor, <laughs> but I mean, I understand from a Sparks story that you told one time that he you spent some time in the morgue sometimes with him when you were growing yes. up, is that right? Yeah. Um, well, he still is a doctor, he's just a different kind of doctor. Sure. So he used to be a reconstructive surgeon, which is a very 
well, to say it's hands-on is a little bit too literal, um, <laughs> but it's a very creative medical practice. So I think he said his, his area of specialty was rebuilding nerves in the hand. Wow. And so, and like, you know, to reconstruct somebody's face, you need to be able, um, he's a very creative thinker. But when we moved to America, there was a real dearth of pathologists. So he retrained as a pathologist, which mostly means looking at slides all day, diagnosing people with leukemia, which is a lot, which is the very opposite. There's just no creativity in that. Um, and while we were while we were living in Minnesota and he was doing his residency, he he did on the side, he had his own autopsy business. And that's why we spent time in the wow. <laughs> How old were you then? Um, oh, I vaguely remember, I think I was about 13 and 14 when I used to go into the morgue with him and dissect human organs. <laughs> Which sounds really... It's an interesting age to be doing it. I still thought I was going to be a doctor then. I was fascinated. I actually think well, it is still think it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely fascinating. And it wasn't bloody at all. I mean, he would sort of do the, the dirty work ahead of time, take out the organs, wash them, put them in formaldehyde. So it was just like a heart to me or just a, a brain. I didn't sure, associate didn't it with a body. person. Yeah. Yeah. That must, yeah, I mean, that, 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 that takes away the... Squ- the squicky awkward bit yeah. and just puts in the fascinating stuff you know, def- definitely it's definitely fascinating yeah. um, whereas when um, when my gr- when my grandmother died a month ago in Romania they, I don't know if this is true everywhere in Romania but certainly in in her city nobody involves you know the, the dead so we were the rest of the family we were driving through we're getting is our own private peep show happening right there. Yeah, I know. There's, there's, yeah. there's two of There's them. like couples on that side. Um, so, yes. Um, my, my parents and my grandfather and I were driving through France when she passed away. Is that you? Yeah, I think so, which is annoying because I thought I turned it off. You were talking about a quite a sensitive moment when... Yes. Uh, when we, were, we were driving, we were halfway... Uh, we just passed Lyon. We were on our way from Paris to Nice uh, when we found out she'd passed away, and so we immediately we just just drove straight to the airport. But it took us, um, I think, like a full 24 hours or longer to get to Romania. So by the time we got there, my grandmother had been dead a couple of days, and then um, we only it took us. It was on the fifth day that we buried her. Incidentally, we buried her on my birthday, so that was a very like a special hill for me. Uh, but we. So you buried your grandmother on your birthday. Yes, um, but that was that was the, the. I think that was maybe the second time I'd seen a corpse. But it it was it was especially gruesome because it was my grandmother, and she was I was she considered me her second daughter, so we were very close. Yeah, and. And because she wasn't involved and because the process of getting together the funeral took so long, by the time we buried her, she was clearly starting to decompose. And so now I realize the extent to which my father spared me from some really horrible things when we were dissecting things together. Um, Yeah. And I I have these very um, dark thoughts. Like, I, I realized the other day that 
it had been a month and I was just thinking like she's underground turning into soup she's turning into grandma soup it's like it's something I don't I'm trying to but the more I make myself try to not think about it the more I think about it yeah. so I just you should you should you should you should say it you, yeah. you should keep it inside I think yeah. you're right in your instincts on that I mean you you were close to your grandma uh, and was she in Romania still? she was but my grandparents visited us a lot in the states and for for several summers growing up I, I went back every summer for a while uh, initially because uh, a consequence of learning English in three months was that I stopped speaking Romanian and so my parents initially sent me back so I would speak so I stayed with I stayed with my grandparents and then um, I just went back every summer until I couldn't anymore because I had other things to do I to, um, but over the last four years um, I went back every year for about a month because my grandmother developed dementia and so I, I would go back sometimes with my parents sometimes on my own and stay with her for a month and sort of help take care of her and so that was another was like a completely different aspect of our relationship because suddenly I was I was the caretaker and she was the child and I had I don't have any children but I and I I, I like children but I'd never felt a maternal instinct until I started having to take care of my grandmother because she was a child. She was a child in an 80-year-old's body when she was a child. Um, so I don't know if that made the process of losing her more difficult or, or what, but um, it was a blow. Yeah, sure. I mean, we're, sort of, we're Facebook friends, so I, I gathered that to a certain extent. Um, and I follow you on Twitter, so, so I, I get all the updates. <laughs> Twitter is where I put my less politically correct thoughts. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. doesn't have my name tied to it or anything, so it's just like I just let it rip. <laughs> yeah. Thank <Okay. Very> you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess it's a, it's a, because I mean, my, my dad's eighty-nine. You um, probably, I think, I think you told a story at the same night as I think I, the only time I've ever managed to get him up on the Spark London yeah. stage. Um, and he's in very good health, thank, thankfully. So the dementia element uh, is something that everybody's scared of, but hasn't hasn't happened yet. But certainly, I'm I'm finding myself now in a in a in a in a position of being being not, I don't think parental, because like I say, the dimension of things is not there, but certainly in a more of a consciously caring for him in the way that he cared for me when I was growing up, kind of way. Uh, and it is a, a strange adjustment to make, definitely. Uh, and I, I'm doing it very mildly compared to what you, you did. Well, and what I did is nothing compared to my, what my mother did, because I sure, would go yeah. for a month, but she would go for two or three months. And I'm not, I had not having really grown up with, with the Romanian system of bureaucracy and things. I don't know how to accomplish, like how to set up, um, like special disability uh, compensation for them. And she was the one who did all of that. So right. she would all not only she not only had to deal with the emotional impact, but she had to 
like bureaucratic keep it together yeah. and go yeah, yeah. and 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 that that that's not easy. That shit is not easy. I when I was there um, a couple of summers ago after I graduated from from college, I went for a month. Uh, and my grandfather had um, he was having some issues with his blood pressure, and I was talking to my parents about it on the phone, and they said, "Well, you're gonna have to take him to the doctor." And I remember my thir- my first thought. I was very ashamed of this thought. I thought, "Oh my God, why? Like, I don't want to." Um, it's just not something you ever want to be involved in. Yeah. And yeah. not least because the elderly are not taken seriously. No, and, not. and And again, this is something I'm generalizing in all of Romania, and I shouldn't because I really only have. I've, I've only come into contact seriously with the society in this sort of small city. But if you're sort of over 75 and you need to call the ambulance, they ask you how old is the patient, and if the patient's over 75, you can bet you're going to be the last on their list. You know, it's sort of like, well, they're dying anyway, so what's the point? And I had to take him to a cardiologist, and he has had, uh, up until that point, he had, I don't, to my knowledge, he had never had any sort of heart issues. Um, he's possibly better health than I am, and and I. I found a cardiologist. I purposefully looked for one who was older himself, because I thought maybe he'll care more. My grandfather that summer, he was 90 that summer. So I thought, like, somebody's going to take a look at him as a 90-year-old and think, well, you know, he's just dying. Why should I give him the time of day? So I took him to this older cardiologist. And not only I learned the hard way, not only are the elderly not taken seriously, but um, women aren't either. Yeah. Especially not young, young women. women. Yeah. Yeah. I went in there with him because my grandfather um, has a tracheotomy, so it's difficult for him to speak. And he gets, he loses patience, and so he won't take the time always to fully explain what's wrong. So I thought I would go as his translator. And I explained, and, and I knew we were in trouble when the doctor said, well, you know, for a 90-year-old, he's doing very well. Listen, he's doing markedly worse than he was doing two weeks ago. And if he were 40 or if he were 30, you would take that seriously. But, um, and and I, I just kept getting dismissed by this man just over and over again. And I think if it would have been my own health, I would have thought, you know, like, fucking, I'm young, like, I'll be fine. I'll, I'm just going to leave. But like, it was, it, it was somebody yeah, else's. Yeah, yeah. So I, I more or less said, I'm not leaving your office until you prescribe him something. Yeah. And his tone changed completely when he realized, when I, because that's insolence, basically. He took that as insolence, and his tone with me changed entirely. Before it was like, oh, isn't it cute? It's like the granddaughter coming in. He's like, this, this is this girl is a pain in my ass right now. Yeah, he's a woman, a young woman, yeah. telling me a older man. So, yeah. generationally speaking, he thinks he's superior, probably as well as yeah. gender-wise. Yeah. <laughs> And that was my one experience with the system, and so I can't like. Can't imagine what your mum was having yeah, to do. What she, and what she's going through now, because she she stayed after the funeral to sort a lot of things out, and like the impact of losing her own mother, and they were as close as my grandmother and I were. My mother had twenty five extra years with her. Yeah, absolutely. Mourn. Yeah. Um, and so she's there taking care of the bureaucracy, and I just can't. Like, in a way, for me, it's easier leaving. Whenever I leave Romania after spending it, it's a month with my grandparents, but when I leave, it feels like it's a different life. And so it, what, it's helped that I'm so geographically removed, but she is there. So, yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah, no, that's a really, a really complicated 
situation to, to be dealing with. Is your, your grandfather still alive? Mm-hmm. He is now 93 years old, and we're trying to we're, we're, we want to bring him to live with us in America. Yeah, yeah. So. That, that That's part of the sense. thing she's trying to she has to sort out. Oh God, that must be a nightmare. <laughs> it's, it's, it's much much harder rather to move around the world than it, than it has been for a while. I think now everyone's sort of more inclined to close their borders than, than they have been for, like, may say, the last 50 years. So, yeah, so what has coming to the UK been like as a, a, an American? Oh, as a Romanian American, as a, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm home. I know it's a very strange thing to say, but I don't. Um, when I was in college, I studied abroad in Paris for three months, and I thought that felt like home. It, but this feels slightly more like home. Because we speak the same language. That, and also I I grew up watching, like, just all of the BBC shows. <laughs> um, so I, I feel more connected to... I feel more culturally connected to the UK than I did to France, even though I felt quite connected to, to France. Um, but I don't... Like, I don't feel at home in Romania. Right. Um, and... And I, I, there are times when I feel very American, but most of the time I don't feel fully, when I'm there, I don't feel like I fully belong. Um, and I can't really articulate always why, but, but coming here, it's like the nice intersection of, of the things I like about Romania. <laughs> and then I get rid of a lot of the things I don't like about the state, so. Well, that's great. It's good to hear you've had a positive uh, relationship to the country. Um, it's, it's hard to see the positives in your own country, I think. When people come to it with fresh eyes, they, they have experience. Um, so, the last question that I ask people is, do you have anything to plug? Which is a, a weird one, and it's been taken in lots of different ways. So some people just plug something very kind of like specific, like when they do a project and other people plug ideas or ideologies or sorts of things. I know, but I feel like, I feel like the need to, to tell people that other people have used it that way. But then by doing that, I kind of put pressure on people to do it that way. So uh, take it as you want. <laughs> one of those things where I'm going to say something and then I'm going to go home and realize oh no, I had something so much better I could have said Yeah. Um, that's quite a common response <laughs> <laughs> I feel like my brain just went <laughs> no, I don't think I have anything <laughs> <laughs> no wait, I do I do, this is so selfish um, I, I met a, a very lovely woman a few weeks ago. I can't believe I'm doing this. She's a literary agent and she was looking for um, new writers, like unpublished new authors, but she really wanted a novelist and I don't write novels. And then I realized, but it was like I came so close to having an agent and it was something like, 
It was something I never that had never occurred to me to even pursue, but then suddenly, because it was almost a reality, I thought, this is what my life has been leading to all of this time. <laughs> so now I'm sort of like on the hunt, so somebody please. So you write? I'm kidding. Uh, I don't know if I'm kidding, I might be entirely serious. I do, but it's sort of like... Not with any intention to have a career in writing. I started, um, I, I used to email my friends when I went to Romania just because I was so bored often. Because um, I'd be at home with my grandparents all day, which I loved. But I would get cabin fever. And yet, whenever I would leave the house, I'd feel guilty that I wasn't at home spending time with them. So, I, the compromise I reached is that if I was going to leave the house, it would either to be visit, to, to visit other family or it would be to... Um, to go to the internet cafe because my grandparents don't have internet and um, sort of write to my friends about what was happening because there are very absurd things about well about every place but I would sort of write down the absurd things that would happen to me or that I would see on television and I would write it to my friends and then um, moving here I thought I should maybe continue that and so I've been sending periodic emails and it's not something I thought Honestly, I don't put that much thought into them. I sit down, I write it, and I send it. So it's kind of like blogging, but sort of. to a smaller audience. Yeah, but or maybe um, a bigger audience from a lot of bloggers actually. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Um, but I, it's surprisingly, people have really, like, I, I don't. It's gonna sound very self-serving. I mean, like people are saying, you, you should, you should probably publish this. Yeah. And I thought, like, that's that's just something people say. But I've written other short, like, I wrote a lot of short stories about um, cases I had last summer. Like, the, the thing about the prostitute, that was for my internship working at the public defender's office. And I've written a lot of stories around that. And so, I think slowly over the last year, I've started making writing a separate hobby, like something I do. Yeah. It's like non, non-fiction essays. Yeah, like narrative, non-fiction. Memoir. Like, yeah, memoir Um So I don't know. I don't know if this is really a plug. Maybe this is... I took a class in, in law school called Negotiations, and one of the tactics you're supposed to use to um, to help, help yourself achieve your goal in the negotiation is tell other people what your goal is, because that puts added pressure on you okay. when other people know. I think I'm not so much begging somebody to take me on as I'm telling the world I want to write and now I have added pressure to make it happen. Yeah, no, I, I think that's uh, I, that's something I do a lot. Like, yeah. put out into the world it's something I intend to do and then find that I have to do it. Uh, it's even worse if you actually, like, like what I, I do is, like, put, like, with, with, with my, with my uh, show, Stand Up Tragedy, sort of, like, I booked a, a venue and then I had to do it. You know, that was that's even worse then because you, you really have to do it. When yeah. You, when you when you've done something like that, uh, and it's a good it's a good way of forcing yourself to do it to sort of share it with other people. I can finally go to one of those because they're always on a Friday, right? The kind of tragedy. Sure. Or well, no, the last one was on a Thursday and the next one's on a Friday. The past few have always been regardless on days I couldn't go. Yeah. I can finally go and I'm really curious. Oh, wow. so I'm very excited. Well, excellent. Well be cool yeah. Uh, yeah the next one is on a Friday this one won't this this podcast won't air probably till well after it's over so I won't even bother mentioning when it is <laughs> um, yeah it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you and the pigeons and the, pigeons. And the couples and the uh, 
the footballs and, the, and all sorts of things. We've, I think we've done pretty well uh, with so many distractions. The couple that just left were getting into like, increasing stages of undress, and yeah. they are, I think they are. They were even quite, paler than you and I are. Yeah, they were. Well, they were quite young as well, yeah. I guess. I, I, you know. And sort of vampiric, generally. Yeah. They, they were quite vampiric. I think she had like dyed white hair. Or yeah. Something. Uh, yeah. Which worked so well with the skin tone. <laughs> yeah, but it's weird when you're young. You do like stupid things like that. I think that I would like. I, I certainly remember making out in parks when I was a teenager in a way that I would never ever dream about doing now <laughs> as a 31-year-old man. Um, I used to cover. I used to cover my um, my school bag with like political badges, and then I realized I didn't care about other people's political causes. So why would anyone care about mine if I don't do it anymore? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's it's weird. What you write. yeah? I, there's books that I got from when I was a kid, like school books, which like, I'm like, why did I? announced to the world who I fancied on the front of my books. Why Why did I think that was a good idea? They must have, like, been in the class. They must have, like... They must have, they must have known. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, they probably knew already, you yeah. know? Yeah. <laughs> no one's subtle. No. At no. 10 or I'm whatever. Not, I'm not subtle. I've never been subtle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is great. I feel like I've learned a lot of things about you. Like, I had this image of you as a very bohemian character, where you have you seem to have all of these projects, like you have getting better acquainted, you have stand-up tragedy, yeah. you do spark. And then when I found out you have to clock in and out of a workplace, wow, that's very yeah. No, well, my day job, I work for the yeah, I work for the council, so I'm like, as I work for the literally for the man, I guess. Uh, but I, it's a part-time job, my job, so it allows me to be a bit. It allows me more bohemianness in my life than uh, than most of the jobs I've had in my life. But yeah, no, I do have to clock in, sign, sign in, and sign out. Children centers, uh, which we were saying, I was I was telling you off mic right at the beginning. Okay. Um, and the last thing I ask people to do is to say goodbye to the audience. I'm only to <laughs> goodbye, audience. Bye. Bye. So as I said earlier on, stand-up tragedy is coming back. And that's going to be happening on the 12th at the Dog Star in Brixton from 7.30 till probably around 11. We've got some amazing acts, a really great lineup. It's going to be a bit of a getting better acquainted party, actually, because a lot of the performers who are going to be on stage have featured as guests on the show. We've got comedy, we've got spoken word, we've got storytelling. We've got true stories, we've got live art, we've got music, we've got a variety of different performers who are going to be looking at the more tragic side of Christmas. We're also going to be launching our fanzine, which is going to be tragedy that is written and in pictures. I think, hopefully, I mean we haven't gone to press yet and some things could come up, but our first edition is probably going to be featuring a piece of writing from Patricia so you should look out for that there's going to be a little bit more Patricia this week I'm going to be putting out a GBA special on Friday which is a 
recording of a true story that she told live at a Spark event, which gives a lot more context to some of the stuff that she was talking about at the beginning of this conversation that you've just heard. And it was an amazing moment, really, listening to that story backstage, as I did, because I was live tweeting the, the night from behind the stage. Because Patricia went up and she had a prepared this and she prepared this seven-minute story, but she just was overcome with the story, and the story had to be told. And so we had the full story, and it's much longer than a Spark London story normally would be. So getting better acquainted, which is all about long form, is a great place to house it. So look out for that on Friday, and come along to Stand Up Tragedy. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook, it's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website, www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app, you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the app store there are lots of ways to get better acquainted